Gresham College presents Financial Institutions, Regulation and Compliance by Daniel Hodson, Mercer's School Memorial Professor of Commerce. This, as the Provost says, the fourth lecture in my series for this academic year on the theme of governance. And tonight uh, the theme is the governance of financial institutions. And I hope to make some distinction between governance in that respect and those with other types of corporate uh, bodies. And focusing, as I have in the past lectures, on the role of the board, speaking as one who has served as an executive and a non-executive director on a number of such boards, including the Gyro Bank, as it then was, Nationwide Building Society, Life, and currently the Independent Insurance. Um, and uh, I'm going to start in the Gresham tradition by talking in fairly simplistic terms about distinctions because uh, I think we always recognize on these occasions that it's necessary to move uh, the debate on not just at the level of very, very uh, bright and, and, and knowledgeable people in the markets concerned, but also uh, in the, uh, at, at the level of those who uh, are intelligent and interested but may not know so much about the markets concerned. Simply put, the basic functions of a financial institution fall into four categories. Risk transference, investment and trading on own account, distribution stroke broking, and money transfer. And each class involves risk to a greater or lesser degree. And it is principally the central theme of risk management that, I contend, sets financial institutions apart. It is also in many cases, and particularly in larger entities, their complexity and depth, accompanied by risks of comparable complexity at every level throughout an often diverse and sophisticated organization. Add to these characteristics the potential numbers of clients, the longer-term nature of the relationship, and the strong duty of care associated with many of them, overriding, in the case of retail institutions, as to the quality and appropriateness of the products themselves, and their fiduciary role as the baileys or trustees of the client's own resources, be the latter cash or investment instruments, physical derivative, and then stir in the central economic position of large financial corporates, their importance in sustaining confidence in the financial structure of the economy and the potential for a fraud, and finally address the importance of the regulatory environment arising not just from the need to protect the client, but also the safety and the quality of the markets in which the institution operates at both a microeconomic, i.e. transactional level, and also at a macroeconomic level, that is to say, in respect of their solvency and capacity to undertake the risks involved. And there are indeed, at the end of that very long Gladstonian sentence, some very significant differentiators at play. These issues are recognized in shareholder priority a greatly heightened emphasis on the client-customer and the regulator, perhaps only just behind that of the shareholder. Although, as with most corporates, the latter continuing as sovereign, the shareholder that is, and the public interest not far behind. In these circumstances, it is difficult not to argue that the balance, required skills and responsibilities of the boards of financial organizations may, to a degree, set them apart from those of other corporate organizations. Risk management responsibilities are therefore paramount to the boards of financial institutions. It's fashionable to complain about and make light of new requirements for boards in general in relation to their statute declarations in their annual reports to shareholders. 
The most recent of these innovations is the need for a complete and comprehensive risk view of the business to ensure that the board is fully apprised of all the major risks relevant to the business and the ways in which management has dealt with them and is so declaring to the shareholders. But in the context of financial institutions, it becomes an overriding and critical project, and indeed, although it is at least an annual exercise for the board, it should be the subject of, of continual review by management. At the heart of this requirement is the absolute uh, need for understanding at board level of the major risks taken on by the institution. Two anecdotes illustrate the importance of this. The more homely concerns one of the most successful bankers of recent times, Sir Dennis Weatherston, who rose from clerical origins in the city via the trading desk to be chairman of J.P. Morgan in New York, then the most admired and blue-blooded bank in the world. His test for complex new products was simple. He asked the promoting manager uh, to, to, to explain it to him in the clearest language. If he then felt he did not understand it, he would ask for another explanation. And if he could not grasp it then, he threw the product out, regardless of the arguments being produced in its favour. He took the view that if he did not understand it, there was no way that his board would, and the risk was therefore not acceptable. Modern bankers, please take note. Another example is provided by a setback suffered by Nat West, one of the chain of negative events which ultimately, of course, led to the latter's takeover by Royal Bank of Scotland. In this instance, it concerned a, a portfolio of complex derivative options held by the investment banking side of the institution and valued internally on a regular basis. In 1994, the bank acquired the US-based Greenwich Associates, not least for their derivatives expertise. A logical first task for the newly joined firm was to take a look at the existing option valuations. And of course, the result, based on a new and presumably more sophisticated approach, was very different and resulted in huge write-offs. Who really understood what was going on and at what level? It seems certain that NetWest Board had no conception of the actual or potential exposure. This risk review exercise will undoubtedly draw attention to up to, say, 20 major operational and strategic risks on which the Board should keep an eye and a rather smaller number which are of overwhelming strategic importance. To what extent should individual members, executive or non-executive of the board, have more than a superficial knowledge and understanding of each of these risks, their origin and management, and where appropriate the products associated with them? There used to exist a notion, sponsored by the Bank of England in its past regulatory role, called the Four Eyes concept, namely that every board should contain at least two people who understood every significant risk and or product associated with the institution, hence the expression four eyes. Indeed, this concept was also putatively applied to, to major subsidiary boards, sitting as strategic boards over a large self-accounting area of operation. This did not, of course, imply that every director should understand every product, but rather that at least two members should do so. The question then arises as to whether non-executives of the main board of financial institutions should be expected to have sufficient skills to be expected to contribute some of those I's. E-Y-E-S. I would argue that they unequivocally should. This is not to demean the role of directors with, with general but not necessarily financial services business experience. The expression there is nothing new under the sun is, germ is as germane in the financial services world as it is throughout industry. 
and a great many, if not most, of the strategic organization operational issues which will face the board of any financial institution will be comparable to those experienced by any corporate body. In those circumstances, the highly experienced but generalist and by implication non-specialist director will be of huge importance. Nonetheless, it is hard to escape the fact that financial institutions are for the most part, as I have argued earlier, about risk transference and risk management. From this follows the proposition which I find compelling, that there should be sufficient non-executive directors to provide understanding at board level of both the major operational and strategic risks. The second pair of eyes, thus making four subject to any unforeseen physical disability, would then belong to an executive member of the board, who would either have direct responsibility for or have a proper understanding of the appropriate risk stroke product. There were two possible objections to the increased formalization of a four eyes rule. First, it may increase the size of boards to unmanageable proportions, a criticism which may be applied to many financial institutions with or without a four eyes doctrine. Certainly, I believe it to be true that main boards function best with no more than 12 members, as I've stated in an earlier lecture, and pruning would, I believe, be a major benefit in many boards across the city. But, of course, an NED with the appropriate risk understanding may have knowledge of many such risks and may also have the general business background and other qualities necessary in an NED, so that four or five NEDs between them may indeed have the complete range of risk and general business understanding. It's also argued that such paragons are hard to find and indeed would probably only come from competitors. And this is easy to refute given the vast array of advisors, accountants, investment bankers, lawyers and non-competitive market participants from which they might be drawn, as well as those who learnt their skills as competitors but have now moved on. In support of and underpinning a suitably qualified board is the framework within which it operates. In many respects, this is not substantially different from that of non-financial entities. I have in earlier lectures addressed the roles of the various committees of the board, and specifically those which are general to all major and PLC-type boards, such as the Audit Committee and Remuneration Committee. The proper functioning of such committees, together with the regular supply of appropriate manage management information, are critically important as indeed is the board's obligation to ensure that the appropriate management structure and senior executives are in place. Given the importance of the regulator as a key stakeholder, the compliance and regulatory functions within the management framework must be of particular concern to the board. Perhaps the equitable life, and I say this with some deference because of Michael's role here, but no doubt he'll be bringing us the latest news, could have been saved had there been a modern governance structure in place appropriate to a life company with over a million policyholders over the decades in which the seeds of its potential destruction were sown. The story, somewhat oversimplistically, is the equitable life had been selling guaranteed annuities as part of their pension package since 1957, in effect fixing the amount of future pension that a sum invested today could buy, regardless of the performance of markets or indeed of variations to actuarial life expectancy in the meantime. Both turned against them, Bond yields fell and life expectancy increased, forcing down the yield at which annuities externally in the market could be bought. They subsequently found that they were to meet the contractual expectations of the relevant policyholders, a substantial de deficit would be incurred, which could only be filled by reducing the bonuses made available to other unguaranteed, unguaranteed policyholders. The board therefore set about disclaiming a substantial part of the guaranteed element of the policies. 
but failed to convince the courts. Consequently, the fund is now closed and a great institution is laid low. Much of the sad tale turns around actuarial judgments, which argues, of course, for, far, for greater actuarial knowledge and transparency amongst non-executive directors on relevant financial boards. And this is an issue for another lecture in his own right. However, had the latter been in place, it's possible to suggest that one, the original board decision to launch the product would, particularly with the four eyes concept involved, have resulted in a deep understanding of the risks involved. And the progress of the product would have formed a regular item on the risk review. Bear in mind we're talking about modern techniques rather than techniques which were then used. When it became clear that economic and market circumstances were creating a potential funding deficit, appropriate provisions or reserves should have been made spreading the cost over an appropriate period and flagging the need for caution in pricing and bonus strategy in general. This would have been principally a matter for the Audit Committee in its scrutiny of the formal financial accounts of the institution. Three, the size of the deficit and the reserves set aside against it would have been a regular feature of board-level management information. Four, the decision to attempt to reduce the apparently guaranteed benefits of certain policyholders was an ethical issue of huge importance. In these circumstances, and given the standing of equitable, my word is my bond, and the potential reputational risk to the, com to the company, quite apart from any other considerations, should not have been far from the collective mind of the board. Is it fair to argue that a major misjudgment occurred, and one which a differently constituted board one with a different and perhaps better technically qualified non-executive input, might have avoided. The decision was certainly one which the institution had to take on its own, and at least in principle. And I shall return to the potential role of the regulator later in this lecture. It has been suggested that the regulator should provide the second pair of eyes after those of the executive, rather than, for instance, individual NEDs. But this is to misunderstand the role of the regulator. It would, of course, take a whole course of lectures to describe the background to and the activities of regulation in respect to financial institutions. In the simplest terms, however, the regulator is charged with the protection and supervision, to a varying degree, of four elements of financial markets. The markets themselves, the participants in those markets, the users of those markets, and the public interest associated with those markets. What is absolutely clear is that the board cannot in any way delegate its responsibilities to the regulator, and specifically in the context of comprehension and management of risk. It may be theoretically true that the regulator should have as broad and deep a view and understanding of complex risks as possible, but it is not always practically the case, and it will in any event remain first and foremost the responsibility of the board. But it is also true that the regulator must fulfill a long-stop role in the interest of the institution, the relevant markets, and the public. This role is particularly critical when the internal compliance, regulatory, and delegatory framework of the institution may be incomplete or incompetent. In my role as Chief Executive of Life, I was also a senior regulator, since the exchange was a recognized investment exchange, or RIE, and therefore operating as a frontline self-regulating body. There are a number of times when some interesting market developments or positions arose which made it necessary for me to call the head of the relevant firm for a chat, 
to make sure that everybody fully understood what was going on. On more than one occasion, I found myself telling my opposite number something new and presumably exciting, where the very fact of the call meant that extraordinary risk, either for the market or for the firm itself, was potentially being incurred. The question is, was it right that the individual heard the glad tidings from me, or should he at least have been aware, indeed authorised, the establishment of the position? The Board also has a critical role in setting the cultural and ethical environment of any institution. This responsibility is undoubtedly more pronounced with financial institutions, given in particular their prudential and fiduciary responsibilities. Nor is it an area where the regulator can necessarily take a leading role. And arguably, the tone adopted should be that associated with the highest ethical values. A clear illustration of this is the behaviour of the building societies and in many other retail depositories, at least until the early 90s, in relation to the introduction of new accounts and transparency issues relating to them. Building societies in those days have been in the habit of simultaneously attracting new deposit funds and reducing their overall cost of liabilities by creating a new deposit product, often only marginally different from one already existing, with the great song and dance, and very competitive pricing. The investors' money would pour in, but it was, of course, expensive. And the trick then was to gradually and subtly reduce the interest payable on any comparable old product, playing on the inertia of the old depositors, who would take a while to catch up. Some, usually the weakest, never did, were in effect ripped off for years. The principal sin was a deliberate failure to communicate. I was working at the Nationwide in the late 80s and early 90s, and we were as guilty as any other society of using this technique. But we got caught out at two levels. First, the personal money columns cottoned on to what was going on, probably on account of one particularly blatant new product line introduced to us by us. This resulted in some horrendous negative publicity and a six-hour AGM which more than just the board's collective bladders were tested. And second, we acquired a chairman from outside the industry, Sir Colin Cornes, who was flabbergasted what for years had been going on and ordered it stopped. With hindsight, it's clear that the practice was unfair and the relevant depositories' boards, and there were many involved, should have called a halt a long time earlier. Leaving aside the universal issues, Involved, what Ian Hay Davidson, the first great dustbuster at Lloyd's, used to call the Ten Commandments, the reputational damage was enormous. But what is particularly interesting about this episode is that the practice went on under the baleful eye of one of the most diligent regulators in the history of that art, the Building Society's Commissioner, in particular, for most of the time, uh, someone called Michael Bridgman, who was diligent in the extreme, I must say. Inevitably, also, there were complaints to the building society's ombudsman, who never took serious action in this respect, feeling that practice, the practice was not one that he could prescribe as such. And now, um, a, a final roundup uh, of, of these thoughts. Uh, I find it impossible not to take examples from the bearings collapse, illustrating as it does not only how proper governance structures might, in various ways, have saved the bank, but also a failure of frontline 
I say frontline, long-stop regulatory supervision. The story is simple again. I apologize if I do oversimplify it. Nick Leeson, stationed in Singapore, set up increasingly large proprietary or house positions, first in Singapore and then in Osaka, trading in the Nikkei, which is the Japanese FTSE equivalent in simple terms, index, both the positions being long. He told his colleagues in London and the Singapore exchange, Simex, that he was arbitraging between the two exchanges, having a long position in one, Singapore, offsetting that with a short position in the other, Osaka, which was, in effect, a barefaced lie. The losses on both exchanges grew as the Nikkei fell, and Leeson had to produce more margin the respective exchanges' clearinghouses to cover these positions. In Japan, he used client money, possibly because of the lax rules on the use of client money there. In Singapore, the situation became so difficult that he had to ask Bearings London for a sum roughly equivalent to the firm's capital, justifying it on the grounds that it was for arbitrage and that the underlying position was therefore virtually risk-free. There were various subplots. But the conclusion, as all the world knows, was inevitable and violent. And the story continues to this day with the recent, and I must say sad, announcement of ING's disposal of the rump of Bering's investment banking operations. But in order to analyze the lessons learned, there is a further, lesser known, but stunning point to add. Whereas the positions of individual investors in general, in general within open interest is a secret matter, the rules at Osaka meant that the details of Bering's long position were entirely public were pinned on a notice board. And all this while Leeson was declaring that he was short in Osaka and being believed in Cymex and, for that matter, in Bearings London. Perhaps the cutest operators in this whole affair was at least one London-based investment bank who withdrew their counterparty lines of Bearings a few weeks before the collapse. And so the lessons from an institutional perspective are, one, it was clear that there was no in-depth understanding of the risks involved in the derivatives trading at bearings board level, either executive or non-executive. Arguably, application of the Four Eyes principle would have at least have rectified that. In particular, the proper application of a risk review, as currently proscribed, should have underlined the specific risk involved. Three. Regular and routine management information should have drawn the inherent loss in each exchange to the attention of first management and then the board. Four, the export allegedly to provide margin cover for arbitrage activities of a sum equivalent to the whole of the capital of the institution should have been a board matter with a full examination and details. In the event it seems to have been handled totally informally, there appears to be no constraints from the board on a remittance for such a purpose. This is a case where the long-stop role of the frontline regulator, in this case Cymex, could have been critical. Had Cymex talked to Osaka, as indeed I have to say at life we were in continuous discussion with our competitors, or even asked someone to look at the public position, pu public position board at the latter, Leeson's scam would have been exposed much earlier, and Bearings would have stood a good chance of being saved. And reverting to an earlier topic, could the equitable life debacle have been avoided had the regulator, and there were in fact three of them in succession, been more diligent in understanding the position and taking action to force the board to accept and mitigate the risks inherent in the products being sold? So, 
that's getting to the end of my remarks. Um, and I just want to summarize the conclusions for debate uh, before uh, my colleagues get stuck into, I hope, violent disagreement. Um, financial institutions are distinguished principally by their central activity and skill of risk management and the significantly enhanced importance of the regulator and the client stroke customer, particularly retail, as stakeholder. The basic responsibility of their boards remain the same, but they should pay particular attention to the formal process of risk review, to the governance and management information framework, and to the structure of regulatory compliance and delegation. Boards should in particular apply the four eyes principle, that at least one executive and one non-executive member of the board should understand every major risk undertaken. The board's role is also critical in setting the cultural and ethical environment in which the institution is operating. And finally, the regulator can never substitute for the management responsibilities of the board, but may be reasonably, may be reasonably expected to act as a long stop. Both the bearings collapse, and arguably the current difficulties of equitable life could have been avoided had this long stop role been effective. For all information, please go to our website at www.gresham.ac.uk.